0: Warhammer fantasy news, hobby, lore, and more. Welcome to the Wargames Orchard with Nathan and GJ. Let's go campaigning in the border, princess. I hear it's quite nice there this time of year. This is the Wargames Orchard. Welcome to the show, it's GJ today and i am going to talk to you a little bit about an event we have on coming here in the netherlands this next weekend will be the first ever dutch old hammer day or at least the first ever that i know of we will be uh, gathering together in a, a conference center where there will be uh, lots of tables lots of games have been booked and i will also be there organizing a 5th edition Warhammer fantasy campaign. I want to talk to you a little bit today about the campaign itself and about the scenarios I devised for it. But before we do that, let's talk some hobby. I really need a hobby. A hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. I did absolutely nothing and it was everything that I thought it could be. Most of my hobby time these past few weeks has been taken up by one thing only, and that is the Call of the Crown challenge. I have been working on a small Beastman force. It will be a large force, I hope, when the challenge is done, but at the moment it's still a small force. I've been thinking about a little bit of a narrative that I'm going to do here and I still have to dive a little bit into Beastman lore to see if this is conventional or not. But I had planned on having my, my Beast Lord or my, my Wargore, whatever he's going to be. Um, I, I plan on having him originate as a Bretonian peasant. And he is uh, uh, born with some mutations he has uh, maybe some horns i don't know yet or maybe some hooves or maybe some mutations that are becoming apparent as he gets older and as he gets older he becomes more bestial up to the point where his village um disowns him they send him away leave him out in the woods and in the woods in Brittany, you have a lot of other beastmen. So he hooks up with one of those beastmen tribes. He will eventually become the leader of a small warband. And this warband will consist of uh, my beastmen, uh, Wargore. He will have a shaman. And a single beast herd, because that's everything that I have been painting for the Call of the Crown challenge in October. Now, for some reason, probably because the beastmen are getting too numerous, uh, the Bretonians will decide to invade the forest. And I forgot to mention my Vargor, I painted him up with a reddish skin tone. Um, I mentioned earlier, maybe on the show, maybe it was just to Nathan in the pre-show, amble, preamble, ramble, that uh, when I was undercoating my miniatures, he fell off his tray, and this is the fifth edition or fourth edition Beastman, uh, hero. He has a uh, two-handed axe that he's holding. He fell off his tray and he buried his axe or his horns right into my big toe or my I believe it was my right foot. Uh, I was standing out barefoot, undercoating those miniatures. He fell on top and uh, he drew blood, so I figured it would be appropriate to have him become a corn wargore. Now for some reason um he will not be handling himself very well in the eyes of corn because he is as these bretonians invade trying to clear the forest of beastmen this character i still have to decide on a name he will um not fight till the last uh, with a with a frenzy that you would expect but he will be a little bit more prudent and simply take his war hurt, his beast hurt, and move off. Now, of course, uh, Korn doesn't like that. He will have to spend some time redeeming himself in the eyes of his patron god. And that is what is going to be happening in the coming months For the rest of the challenge, I should probably at some point make a schedule with what I am going to paint next. But I will have my character move um, northwards into the Empire, maybe eventually into the Chaos Wastes, trying to redeem himself and hopefully in the end come back and exact some vengeance on the Bretonian village that has abandoned him, that has cast him out. In his travels, he will meet up with some of the special characters. I have several of the special characters lined up. Uh, there's Gorthor the Beast Lord, Malachor the Dark Omen. Um, there's maybe some others. And, uh, I might even be confusing some names. There's also Morgur, I believe. Um, yeah, like I said, I still need to read up on beastman lore a little bit. And that is what has been playing around in my head for what has been going on with the challenge. And this is just my own part of the challenge. As you may know, I'm also organizing it. So I have been keeping busy um, collecting the entries for October. We already have uh, several thousands of points finished. People are... Sending in some beautifully painted miniatures, and I will post these up all on my hobby blog, where you will see monthly reports and people can just drop a picture or maybe tell a bit of a story, some background, uh, maybe tell a bit about the painting process or whatever they like they can just add there if you still want to join the challenge. Um, if you are hearing this maybe for the first time or if you are as of yet have been undecided and think ah now it's too late uh, you do get one mulligan during this challenge there is one month where you can say well I haven't met my quota I have not painted anything Um, if you want to join now we'll just say that October is your mulligan and You can still jump in with a 1,000 points or 1,500 points or however many points you want. Um, If that's your thing, of course. Uh, No pressure. Uh, It's all going to be very relaxed and laid back. I'm not going to be too hard on anybody. Uh, I just want everybody to have a good time. And from what I have been gathering so far in feedback, I think people are having a good time. Now, speaking of challenges, we also have the Wargames Orchard Challenge. And the Wargames Orchard Challenge for this season, for this month, has the theme Trick or Treat. It took me a long while to decide what I was going to do for this challenge, but I finally settled on what is going to be both Trick and Treat. Here's also going to be a little bit of a background. Uh, As you know, I am doing all of these challenges with a zombie pirate theme. And all of these zombie pirates have... They they lend themselves very well to silly backgrounds and silly uh, conversions. So what I did here is I have a zombie with a spear in his right hand and a pistol in his left and this is going to be Trick. And Trick was a uh, former Empire resident who was a real prankster. But he didn't know when to stop. his. He was the kind of person who set small animals on fire. Just to see what happens. Not out of malice. Not so much out of curiosity. Uh, but just because he... Thought it might be funny, and Trick has a a sense of humor that he is still well developing. He's still trying to see what humor actually is, and he already had this as a person. His, his human name, of course, was not yet uh, Trick. That is his uh, zombie nickname, but Trick at one point took it a bit too far. He caused some deaths. I don't know yet how that will happen. It will probably have something to do with the ocean. He will probably hail from a uh, coastal empire village, and he was sentenced to uh, to that just because he was too much of a danger to the village, to the community. Trick was drowned, washed out to sea and eventually raised by Luthor Harkon. And even as a zombie, he still carries on his tricks, and geheimnisnacht dressing up, trick-or-treating, is his favorite pastime, even all year round. Now, Trick is not alone. I have Trick standing beside a gravestone, ready with his gun to fire, But from his spear there is hanging another corpse, and that is Treat. Treat is made from the uh, banner of the zombie kit. Maybe if you know the kit, you will know what I'm talking about. If you don't know the kit, the zombies, the regular zombies that have been around, or that were around from 99-ish to, I believe, all the way into Age of Sigma at some point, they had a uh, a banner that you could, which was just a crossbar. You had to put it on one of the four varieties of bow arm that you got, and this from this banner, from this crossbar, you could hang several different items, uh, like a bell. You could also have a uh, another zombie hanging there, a zombie torso which was hanging from his neck. He has a noose around his neck. And the spear that came with the zombie kit was... um, um, I'm looking for the English word here. It's it's, uh, wrapped around with rope. So if you position the spear at an angle, which I did... You can have the rope from the hanged zombie torso come off in a sort of natural way from the rope of the spear. Uh, which is what I did. And this torso is going to be treats. And probably I'm going to write the story in such a way that Trick used Treat back when he was still alive probably pulling a prank on someone with the corpse of a hangman. Um, So then he was sentenced to death and both Trick and Treat were raised. Treat is hanging from the spear with his left arm outstretched in a fist in the position of knocking on a door. And in his right hand, he has his right hand dangling down, in his right hand there is a uh, a little candy pouch that I made out of a hollowed out skull and some green stuff. It's dripping candy everywhere. I painted Trick up to um, resemble an empire soldier. uh, I put an empire shield in front of uh, his chest and another one behind him as some makeshift armor. I gave him a skull face, uh, which is basically him using yet another corpse to uh, pretend like he is an undead empire soldier. And that's his, his Halloween costume, if you will. This is going to be my entry, and I'm sure a picture will say a lot more than the thousand words I spent on this. Um, I still have to do some basing material and write the story, but I will hopefully have him up next week. Now you may have been hearing some noise in the background, some... uh, I I don't know what my microphone picks up and what it doesn't, it's... Uh, You probably heard a bump just there. But in general the microphone that I have is really good at filtering out the surrounding noises. What I'm doing at the moment is I am working on some more undead. I am painting up the bases, the edges of the bases of my small vampire counts force. This is a force of barely a thousand points. And when I started painting my vampire counts, I had originally planned to give them uh, brown bases, to to have the bases, uh, give the bases brown edges. But as I started to collect more armies, I decided that I also wanted these armies to be. Uh, interchangeable, especially in fourth and fifth edition, where you can ally in forces. and It would look a little bit strange if you have, for example, a Bretonian army on Goblin Green bases, or what well, this is going to be War Boss Green because the uh, original Goblin Green I have has finished a long time ago. Um, but if you have got, uh, Bretonians on Green bases and then You ally in maybe some empire and they are on brown basis. That to me doesn't feel right. And the only thing that I have so far been putting off is giving my Tomb Kings the same treatment. Because when I started Tomb Kings in 6th edition I put them on a a desert base. Desert yellow along the edges. Um... I believe it's Talon Sand, the the modern equivalent. But back in my day, back when I was younger, it was called Desert Yellow. And that's the only army that I have not, well, I was going to say rebased, but that's not really what's happening here. Uh, re-edged, I guess. Uh, the only one that I didn't do yet. Now the reason I'm doing these Vampire count models now is because uh, I am going to host the tournament, the 5th edition tournament. And um, one guy messaged me, one of the participants, that he was uh, going to come, but he did not have the time to finish painting up his army. So I then said, well... Uh, Well this is what I have painted, just let me know what you need and he selected Vampire Counts so I'm going to borrow him, lend him my Vampire Counts army and let's just see how he performs then. I have also made a couple of test armies tomorrow, I am going to play a couple of games against uh, Ruland, uh, my buddy, who lives about half an hour's drive by car away. He's also coming to the event. Uh, For him, these test games have been the first time in a long time playing anything other than 8th edition. I like 8th edition, but I also like 5th edition a lot, and uh, 6th edition will probably always be my favorite edition, because that's the one that I started with. So, for the campaign itself, I have made two armies. I'm not even sure if I'm going to participate, but should there be an odd number of people, I will participate myself, because we don't want to have anybody uh, sitting at a table doing nothing. And just in case someone else wants to join, they can then borrow another army. And the armies that I made are two that I have not played very often, which are Dark Elves and Dwarves. I just made these armies uh, today, um, just real simple. And the reason for that is because the campaign rules allow for simple armies. You have three stages in this campaign, in the first stage you play with five hundred points aside in the second stage, you extend that five hundred points force to uh, seven hundred and fifty and then in the third and final stage, you extend the seven hundred and fifty points army to a thousand points. I had to come up with some rules for for example. If you wanted to play Demons of Chaos, because then you have to have a Demon Prince as a general. And you cannot have more than 50% of your army in characters. However, a Demon Prince is a naked demon prince is 275 points. So that would put you over fifty percent. Um so what I did there is I said well you take your demon prince, you take your two twenty five points or as close as you can get of retinue and then in your seven hundred fifty points list the first thing you have to do is to complete the retinue so that the demon prince um so that the army is legal with the points cost of the demon prince. Now, I don't know if anybody's going to play demons. I have not asked for people to send in their armies beforehand. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just not sure what's going to happen here. We'll just, uh, see. And, um, I'm also very curious to see how it goes because it's the first time for me organizing a campaign like this. And I don't, I hope I have not gone overboard with all the special rules and and all the special stuff. Uh, What I have decided to do is that in the first scenario, you pick three random magic items. And the way that this goes is you decide which category of item you want. For example, you want a magic weapon. And then I made a table where you roll one or two dice. And the result will tell you which item that you can have. And this item is going to be a uh, 50 point item max for the first battle, 75 points max for the second round and uh, no limits for the final round. There's also a limit on wizard levels. You can only have one wizard level in the first battle, two in the second battle, and no limits in the final battle. The setup of the campaign is as follows. There have been rumors of a particularly wanted magic item, the Tankard of Tastiness, that has been cited in the Border Princess. So all armies, all Factions send out small scouting forces, left, right and center, to see if they can find the tanker. I think we will have between 4 and 8 participants tomorrow. Uh, There have been some people showing interest, and then when they find out it wasn't a tournament, they lost interest again. Um there have also been some people saying I want to join but I'm not sure yet or some that said I will join but that I have not heard from since. So I am expecting at least four people, myself included, and maybe up to eight. Um so what I did is I devised four different scenarios for the first and second round. And the scenarios for the first and second round are the same. The scenario for the first round um, and second round all last four turns because we do want to have some time left in the day to, to do some other things. And these scenarios are as follows. The first one is with a drunken giant in the center of the battlefield. He starts a little bit off-center, you have to scatter him a little bit before the battle begins. And during the battle, both players each turn roll a die. And the player who rolls the highest number gains control of that giant for that turn. So you just have that giant in your army then, and even if it's your opponent's turn, in a movement phase after your opponent has moved. You can move the giant and you can even charge the giant into your opponent's units in his own turn. If you manage to kill the giant, the person who kills the giant will get the victory points for him. And uh, if you roll a double or if, if both players roll the same number on their d6, control of the giant will be random. Uh, the, uh, the um, now not so much as control will be random, but the giant will move in a random direction, and he will just basically whatever he he bumps into counts as charging. Uh, the giant always attacks random because he's drunk, and the players are trying to bribe him with uh, more beer or or gold or sheep or maybe some goblins or snotlings whatever you are flying around. And yeah that's just that's that's going to be the first scenario, so you have that giant as a big random factor in there. the second scenario um and and I'm using these terms just because that's the order in which I have them written down, not because the order is the order in which people play them and uh, the four scenarios will be played each on one table, or maybe three scenarios if we don't have enough players for four um and each scenario will then have uh, the, the player who wins the scenario can choose which one he wants to do next and loser automatically takes the other one. So the second scenario that I have on my list is called wild magic and this works as follows, we have a number of Arcane ruin pieces set up on the table, the players set them up before the game starts. These are going to be the only terrain pieces on the table, and the arcane ruins uh, at the start of each magic phase, you roll two d six for the number of winds of magic and the lowest die will determine uh, how many of these arcane ruins start resonating with the winds of magic. And what happens then is that uh, you randomize, say you roll a, a 4 and a six, 6, um, then players get, uh, you divide 10 wins of magic cards among the players, and you have 4 random spells going off. You first determine which of these 6, I believe, are going to be, which of these 6 ruins are going to release the spells. And then you roll a random direction, uh, and a random number on a d8, because these spells are going to be coming from the fourth edition college magic sets. I will put the college magic sets next to the gaming board. People can, um, can, can have their, uh, just roll roll a number for a deck and then pick the top card or pick a random card from that deck and then that's going to be the spell that's cast in a random direction uh, at first, when I devised the scenario, I thought of doing the highest number of the winds of magic dies and also the um, to have the spells have unlimited range but then this magic system started dominating the game way too much and slowed it down as well. So that's why I revised it a little bit, made it a little bit less impactful. Maybe it's not going to be impactful enough now, I don't know. But either way, um, that's how we're going to play it. And these spells then bounce off in a random direction, hitting the first unit in their path and then doing their effects as long as they are in range now if one of these spells hits another one of those arcane ruins then you will get a a cascade effect the spell the original spell is redirected it's bounced from the ruin with a new as a new starting point in a new random direction And the ruin itself will also release a new spell. So, um, you can potentially then have multiple spells setting off different ruins. It happened once or twice in the game that we played, and that was with a lot of those spells. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a nice little mechanic. The background for it is that this is an ancient battleground where wizards fought a long time ago. And the magic has just seeped into the ground and um, having new wizards around drawing from the winds of magic releases some of that power acting as a conduit, having people nearby acting as a conduit. So yeah, that's, um, that's going to be the second scenario the third one and this is one that I'm going to test out tomorrow as well as the fourth one uh, the third one is I don't remember what I called it I have to look it up I put all of these scenarios on my my personal hobby blog gjsworkshop.wordpress.com and this scenario is going to be two rival princedoms in the border princes have. um I have set up a tower, a guard tower, at the edge of their, um, of their territory. There's a little bit of no man's land between them. Basically the towers are front and center in the deployment zone. And at the top of each tower, these are going to be the 5th edition starter set towers, the stone towers with the open top roof. At the top of each of those is going to be a cannon Manned by three crew members, a regular normal cannon, and these towers have been exchanging shots over the years, so they are not at full strength anymore. Uh, they are uh, normally a tower has ten damage points or ten wounds, whatever you want to call it. These ones have five, but the cannons only do D four wounds, so you can't destroy a tower in a single turn. Since the scenario only lasts for four turns, I think that's very lucrative and at least worth a try. Uh, During your turn, during your shooting phase, you have to roll a leadership test for the humans in the tower. If they pass the leadership test, they will listen to the the advice of the general. And you can basically, as a player, decide where they shoot. If the leadership test is failed, they are um, falling for the taunts and, and uh, insults that the people in the other tower are throwing at them. And they have to fire at the other tower. Now if the other tower is destroyed, then you will get a victory point for destroying the tower and another one for destroying the cannon. So it is lucrative to destroy the other tower. Plus you then disable a piece of artillery of your opponent. that he can also use against your units with great effects. That's one I'm going to try out tomorrow, and the last of these four scenarios that we want to try out tomorrow is going to be called "It's a Jungle out there." I have um earlier this year made a lot of the uh, t- took some of the oval and round bases and I have f- fortunately for a rather good price been able to acquire a sealed set of the Citadel Jungle Terrain plus a Citadel Battle Mat, I believe it was 25 euros for the both of them and this this was the Grass uh, Battle Mat, Flux Battle Mat That was released at the beginning of seventh edition, so not the uh, Realm of Battle board from eighth edition. However, this this was a good deal, and I used that jungle terrain plus some some more fake plant stuff and some aquarium plants that I got way too many of. That was also a lucky order. I ordered four packages, and I got six, I believe. Um, Used those to make some jungle terrain. And that jungle terrain is going to be set up on the table. It's going to be, well, not so dense that you can't move through it, but still pretty dense that it will have an effect. And this is an idea I took from the 8th edition book, where if you enter a forest, you have to roll to decide what type of forest it is. Now these pieces of jungle are so dense they count as impossible terrain. But the um, if you come within two inches of the forest of the jungle terrain pieces, you have to roll a d6 to see what they are. And now I just have to uh, go over and look at my blog to see what I devised for them. Um. Let's see here. Scroll all the way down. I also put, by the way, some deployment maps in the uh, on my blog. So if you want to play these scenarios for yourself, uh, feel free to do so. I hold no copyright to them. I claim no copyright to them. You can just uh, well. If if you're going to make money off of them, then a shout out would be nice. But other than that, uh, I mean, we're all friends here. Just Yeah, hobby is expensive enough as it is, Uh, go wild and see if you can play them, if you like them, if you maybe make some adaptations of your own, Um, anything goes. So, it's a jungle out there, if you roll a 1 for the forest, then you have skink archers hiding in them. Any unit that passes the jungle within 2 inches uh, and or ends it move within 2 inches of the jungle takes d6 strength 3 hits distributed as shooting attacks. So basically skinks don't want to be near you, and the reason that there's a jungle in the border princess I forgot to mention is because this has this was an area that the Slan of old have tried terraforming a little bit, and then subsequently abandoned. Although there are still some rogues, skinks living in there, and uh, the the old ones have not quite abandoned the forests, as we will see. If rule a two, then the result is poisoned vines. Any units within two inches of the jungle. During the shooting and close combat phase count as having poisoned shooting and close combat attacks. The third one is Creepy Crawlies. Any unit that passes the jungle within 2 inches and or ends its move within 2 inches of the jungle must take a fear test. All the normal rules for fear apply. So if you cause terror yourself you don't need to test etc. If you are frenzied or immune psychology you don't need to test. If the test is failed, the unit flees as if charged by an outnumbering fear-causing enemy. Lots of spiders and insects and, and lizards and snakes coming out of the woodwork to chase the unit away. Number 4 is Slam Magic. Any unit that is within 2 inches of this jungle can draw upon an ancient magical conduit hidden in the undergrowth. All spells, this unit casts spells one less power to a minimum of one. And, um well, I say unit, but it is, it's basically a wizard in the unit. Or if you have, like, a demon unit, a unit of demonets, they count as a wizard as well. So it works for those. Um... So your old spells cost one less power as long as the wizard remains within 2 inches of this jungle piece. Number 5 is a blessing of the old ones. The first unit that is within 2 inches of this jungle piece gains the blessing of the old ones and counts their armor save as one higher than it is. Or if you don't have an armor save you get a 6 plus armor. A 1 However, will always fail. I don't really know, by the way, if that's a rule in 5th edition. I might have to look that up and, and change it if it is. The blessing remains with the unit indefinitely and they can only be lost if they flee. After a blessing has been applied, this jungle has no further effect. A unit can only receive the blessing once if it triggers a second blessing. Then you put a die next to the jungle with a 5 on it. And the first unit that doesn't have a blessing, that comes within 2 inches, they get this blessing. And what happens then is after the blessing has been applied, you turn the die to a 6. And 6 is um plants, just plants. It is a regular, non-magical, uninhabited piece of jungle. That has no additional effects, just counts as a piece of impossible terrain. That's going to be it for the first two rounds. So players will be playing two scenarios of these four. The first one will be a random draw, the second one will be a choice. So if for example you play scenario two, you can choose to go to either one or three if you win. And if you lose, you will go to the other one that um, the winner did not choose. In the case of a draw, I don't know yet what happens. I think uh, people would just have to uh, make a gentleman's agreement and see if they can decide amongst themselves or, or else roll a die. What are we going to do in round number three? The big one with the thousand points there will be once again four boards set up with some terrain pieces and in the center will be an objective. The game lasts for a random number of turns. If you uh, you play for uh, two full turns and after each turn after that, so after the second turn and after each next turn, you roll a d6. If the number rolled is higher than or equal to the previous turn number, both players get another turn. And if the number is lower, the game ends. So after turn 2, the game continues on a 2+, plus. after turn 3, the game continues on a 3+, plus, etc. So the game will last for a maximum of uh, 7 turns, because after turn 6, it will continue on a 6. The game ends. When the game ends, you have to decide which player has a unit that is closest to the objective. Um, Also, when a player is wiped out, of course, the game ends. If the turn number runs out, the game ends. And whenever the game ends, the player who uh, has the unit of five or more models that is closest and and those that unit is not fleeing closest to the center of the table they win the objective and what we're going to do is we're going to decide a winner so we will have uh, between two and four winners probably and between them we are just going to decide we're going to roll off to see where the tankard of tastiness is actually hidden and I have uh, bought a half liter boots. I, I think it's wood, it might be a wood look tanker that has a stainless steel interior that you can actually drink from. It's got this nice cast iron handle on it. It doesn't have a lid, um, other than that, it looks very dwarfish. And that's going to be the price. And That's what uh, the winner of this campaign, the randomly determined, the the winner of the battle with the randomly determined location uh, will take home Uh, and hopefully also some nice memories of games and some new friends made along the way. That is what I have in mind for this coming Saturday. I have had some other ideas for scenarios that have so far just not made the cut. I had one worked out which was just going to be too cumbersome where you have an ancient graveyard with off of the side of the board two necromancers trying to raise skeletons while there's a battle going on. So this basically requires a third player to move the skeletons around and I thought that was not going to be, uh, that was going to uh, delay the game for far too long. There's another one I also had in mind, but I that I hadn't worked out, is a scenario where you have a river running all the way across the length of the board, down the center. And every turn, or every other turn, you get a raft with night goblins that have bows and spears and it has a randomly determined number, it moves a randomly determined um, length and the night goblins just pick a target and shoot and then those rafts can be attacked or they can get caught in the stream if you if you roll a double then something happens and uh, the rafts take a wound and then when the rafts are dead then all the night goblins uh of course, drown, and then you get a new raft coming in. Um, I might do a scenario like that at some point, but it, it didn't make the cut for this campaign that is more or less going to be it for this Look at the campaign. I will probably also do a short recap in the next episode. And before I forget, um, you might have been wondering why you are hearing so much of me and so little of Nathan. And the reason for that is not that there has been a hostile takeover of the Wargames Orchard and that I am now in command and Nathan is locked out of everything. It's just that Nathan has been extremely busy with school and life getting in the way. And hopefully we can do a episode where we have both of us on. Um, unfortunately, until that time, it's going to have to be me that you have to contend with. So, I hope I do this podcast a little bit justice. Uh, I still have that imposter syndrome, even after being on the podcast for over a year, doing solo episodes for several months now. I still feel like um, I may not be qualified for this job and I I get that with a lot of things and I know that a lot of people get that and I should just get over it, but, well, I basically can't. So, this will probably take a little bit more time for me before I feel confident enough to actually call this my podcast as well, even though Nathan says that that I should, that is just as much my podcast as it is his. I still see it as Nathan's podcast, and I would never dream of usurping him. What I do dream of, however, well, nah, I'm not going to dream about that, but um, I I was looking for a segue that's just not there into our Patreon. We have a Patreon, and and, that's also one of the things that Nathan has granted me access to, Or is in the process of granting me access to. And I did record this summer an episode that I wanted to put out on the Patreon. Now due to time constraints and just both of us being busy, the episode hasn't aired yet. But I promise I will put it on as soon as all the login things are in order. This episode is going to be about a single spell. Van Hels Dance Macabre. And the reason for that is because... um, There is a theme park that I frequented when growing up. It was not too far from my hometown. And in this theme park they had a haunted castle. And I say had because... In the beginning of September, they closed it down and they're going to take it apart and, well, build something new, a new attraction. Um, And I think that's a shame because this theme park, this attraction, this haunted castle, had a lot of very nice practical effects. And the haunted castle ride... If you if you look, um, I can I will probably in the Patreon put a link in the description where you can experience it for yourself. The right is uh, you stand in front of a large glass window and you look out on the graveyard of a monastery, and then uh, you see a hangman dangling down from. The bell tower ring the bell twelve times, of course, because that's the uh, the ghost hour, the witching hour. And after the twelfth time, you see some some robed monks with candles. They are moving along very spookily, very eerily. And then when they enter a door, the door closes with a bang, and the music starts. You see a ghostly uh, violin. A ghostly hand playing a violin. And this song is Dance Macabre. The the classical music piece by Camille saint Sans. I, in this episode, tell you a little bit about this ride. And also about the theme Dance Macabre itself. The, the dance of the dead and what that actually pertains to. And then I will dive into the spell itself and Hells Dance Macabre and the spin-offs that you got during the different editions. And finally, I will close off with a short story that this time is not written by me, but it was written by. Oh, well, i have to say this from memory. I believe it was Brian Craig, but I might be mixing up my names here. Uh, And uh, the story is called Totentance, and I found it in the uh, Tales of the Old World Omnibus, which is a sort of an anthology of a lot of short stories. And this one, I I remember reading it years ago, and this is one that stayed with me the longest, because it made quite an impression on uh, younger GJ. So... That's what I am going to be doing on the Patreon. I think Nathan will probably, when he has time, also continue his uh, army book reviews. Hopefully we will have time to record an episode together next week. But if not, then I will try to get back to you with another solo episode. If you have any tips or suggestions, any things you want us to to talk about. If you maybe are um, interested in doing another, well, what did I call it, like a paint ramble, uh, sort of like what I was doing today. I just sat here painting a little bit, uh, chatting with you or chatting at my computer. If you are interested in those things, just let us know. Um, as far as I see it the podcast is here to serve you and I can select topics that I like but basically I like everything about Warhammer so if there's anything in particular you want us to discuss or to talk about or maybe some hobby related aspects just yeah let me know and I will see what we can do for you that's going to be it for today thank you very much for listening and have a great week thanks for listening you can connect with us on instagram or email us at wargamesorchard at gmail.com and don't forget to join us on facebook at the warhammer orchard Mortals has come to an end.